Yeah, well, we've been on the other side of that. I just got to go back to work. You know, we've all been there before. We had one in Kansas City at the beginning of the year, and uh, just got to go back and grind it out day by day. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Hey, yo, welcome back to the podcast. Boss man, how you doing over there? I'm doing great. Can you hear the excitement in my voice? I can hear it. I have arrived in Bangkok for DCBKK. Got here a little early because I wanted to stuff my face with Thai food, which I have been doing. And apparently go to spin class. I went to because you have to have balance <laughs> in life. <laughs> Look, it's, as you know, I like to ride bikes, but... It's not a great city for cycling. Let's put it that way. Gasp. Bangkok is not a great city for cycling. So I'm going to try to suppress my giggles while telling this story. I went to a spin class. And if you've never been, they put you in this room with a bunch of other motivated people. They demand a good attitude. They put on loud music and like a choreographed light show. Mm -hmm. And you ride your bike like a maniac for an hour. <laughs> and it's pretty freaking awesome. It's awesome. I loved it. You know, if had I been on a stationary bike <laughs> with myself listening <laughs> to one of my favorite podcasts, oh man, I probably would have, yeah, you know, said I was okay about halfway through and gone and eaten some more Thai food. So I think <laughs> I'm all in on spin classes. Zoom out for just a second, right? Just zoom out on our tiny little world for a second. You're going to see cats and dogs leading us around, leading humans around, like, you know, picking up their poop and whatnot. And then you're also going to see this great land of green space and open areas, right? All around the world, maybe not in Bangkok. And then you're going to see these people huddled in these small gyms, lifting these heavy weights, riding on these bikes, when there is a vast land to be active on. We are strange animals, boss man. Yes. Today, we are here to talk about one of my favorite books of 2018. In fact, I picked it up thinking, hey, this is just going to be a great read. I don't expect it to have takeaways for the business. And I was shocked and delighted that I was taking notes in the first chapter. And so I tweeted the author, Michael Lombardi, who I'm a big fan of, and was tickled to receive a reply back saying that, hey, have me on the pod. And so today, we are going to have Michael Lombardi on the podcast and someone I'm a huge fan of. So a quick introduction for those of you who aren't American football nerds. Michael Lombardi worked for and learned from two of, I think it's fair to say, it's pretty clearly the greatest football coaches of all time. We're talking about American football here, of course. Bill Walsh of the San Francisco 49ers and Bill Belichick of the New England Patriots. So Bill Belichick, who we're going to talk about quite a lot in this interview, has famously collaborated, Ian, with the GOAT, or the greatest of all time. So we call him the GOAT quarterback, Tom Brady, for nearly 20 years. Have you heard this term, the GOAT, by the way? Yeah, sure. It's used in all sports, not just football. And football isn't the only sport. Right. It used to be that you'd say, like, the Michael Jordan of, and now you just say the GOAT. Yeah. Because, you know, there's some debate now about the Michael thing. 
So for another episode, we'll put that. <laughs> well, given enough time that passes, this is always the case, right? Absolutely. I mean, the people in the previous generation were horrified to hear that Michael Jordan was being considered the GOAT. Exactly. But back to football and why it's relevant for entrepreneurs. Honestly, this book is as much a business book as a football book. And here's why learning about strategy and leadership from those who are running professional sports teams can have an incredible import for us who are running businesses. See, what we do over here on this side of the aisle, Ian, is falsifiable. It means if you go out and do a mediocre job, not so great of a job, eh, you can always dress it up. You can make an excuse. You can rationalize. You don't really have to look at where you're failing. This is not the case in the competitive world of the NFL and American football. If you do a mediocre job, if you're not a good leader, if your organization isn't run really well, you're just going to lose and you're going to be out of a job. And so for me, when you listen to a lot of business podcasts, here's the reality. You're hearing from a lot of people that have losing strategies. You know, Maybe they're running a five-figure business when they miss out on a six-figure opportunity, but they're dressing up the five-figure thing like it's not a big deal because X, Y, Z. And so sometimes those strategies that are coming from those organizations, you know, they're not molded by the intense pressure of actually having to perform. And that's the context under which a lot of Michael Lombardi's thoughts come under. In other words, a standard of excellence and a standard of winning. Dan, I really like this idea that, you know, football and some of these other sports are obviously zero-sum games. Like there's a winner and there's a loser. And in business, a lot of times there's winners and there's mediocre winners and there's kind of loser winners. There's like a broad spectrum. Yeah. And like you said, you can kind of paint the picture how you want, right? And dress it up. But there is a clear winner and a loser in a football game. And the fact that these people are winning and losing on a weekly basis, it's very easy to see what their track record is. And it's very easy to see how sustainable it is. There's going to be a lot of takeaways of this interview, which we're going to discuss later. But one first one is, hey, think about getting your ideas about success, leadership, effective organizations, and strategy from areas outside of the business world. Ask yourself, are there places you can go look for ideas? And that's certainly what happened for me with Gridiron Genius. I mean, I walked away with notes. I was inspired. I was like, I can be a winner too. You know, like it was really inspiring to me because here's the reality in the business world that I got to point out. And I don't want to be a poopy pants, but I'm going to say it. One of the strategies that's often used when you lose in the business space is that you just simply become an expert. You hang your shill up and you become an expert. And I'll tell you what, there is nothing expert about being incurious and presenting yourself as an infallible expert about something. People that we're going to talk about today, people in the NFL, they cannot afford that approach because that hubris, that lack of attention to detail, and that incuriousness will lead to losing. You know, that's sometimes the difference between hearing the message from people who've actually won and hearing the message from people who are trying to get you to do something shamelessly. Does that make sense? Is that a fair rant? It's a fair rant. I'm very interested to hear what Michael has to say. All right. So we'll return to some of these ideas after the interview, but let's get going. So I started out by asking Michael 
about getting hired for what is essentially a dream job, an internship with the legendary Bill Walsh, an opportunity to literally sit next to him in a car and get a sense for how his mind worked and how he made decisions. Apologies for the sound quality because it isn't the best, but I think you're going to really enjoy Michael's thoughts. So I was working for the, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I, I just got hired full-time at $9,000 a year. I was you know, not married, no children. I lived basically in a, in a one-room apartment. And he was looking for a young intern to basically work in the college scouting department for the 49ers. And as fate had it, I just was fortunate enough to get the job, and I did. One of the things that really jumped out to me, Mike, and it is like almost like this incredible coincidence, but why didn't Bill Walsh drive his own car? Well, he did. If I was going to the airport and he wasn't going to leave his car there or if he was going somewhere. I mean, I, I don't want to I hope I don't project it as I was a chauffeur because he drove his car regularly. I just happened to have some time in the car with him alone, which was awesome. Yeah, you just get this idea of like you as this young intern sitting with a legend, you know, in these private moments. And it really was. And the challenge that I had and I wrote about in the book was, look, I'm obsessed with Springsteen to this day. And if I took his car to get it clean without him in the car, I would change it to KFOG the rock station in San Francisco. And like an idiot, I would forget to change it back to his classical sticks. You have like so many relationships active in the NFL now. Do you ever get a sense like you hold the pen back a little bit to maintain those relationships? Like, how does that work? Look, if people are so thin skinned that I write something that may be derogatory about them, they should take it as, you know, we teach our kids all the time. There's a difference between coaching and criticism. You know, I'm not criticizing you, I'm coaching you. And so I'm just making a point. And I truly believe this. This is a big Walshism. If you really believe something, say you believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, you should read every conspiracy book you can get your hands on because you need to see the different side of you. Were there books that motivated you that you read that helped you out in your career? No doubt. He told me to go get the Tom Peters book and Bob Wooderman In Search of Excellence. And I think that book has probably spurred more. And then everything about Drucker everything about Warren Bennis. I mean, he set me on the journey to understand management and incorporate business. That's why when you talked about this book being a business book as much as a football book, that's because of Bill Walsh. It's because of the lessons I learned from him and how he was able to tell me that football was a business and it had to be run like a business. And we had to take business principles and apply them to the sport. And it wasn't just a sport. It wasn't a recreational game. And so those things, and I still do it. I mean, I read constantly about business. I mean, I'm reading a book right now called Wisdom at Work by Chip Conley. It talks about age and experience, which obviously my age and my experience applies to me. But I think if we stop being curious and we stop trying to learn, we stop living. That brings me to a question I sort of had at at the end, but I'll bring it up now is, do you think executives have like a peak like players do? I do. I think this, and I learned this again back in San Francisco. Henry Kissinger writes in his memoirs that when you go to Washington, you borrow on the intellectual power you bring and you can't renew it once you're there. And the NFL and most businesses are like that. If you don't continually renew your intellectual power in your job, you're not going to continue your job. We have to set an hour aside to exercise or two hours. We have to set an hour aside to read something stimulate our intellectual power. I learned that through the writing process too, Dan. I felt like, you know, when I was in the NFL, I was like, I can't leave my desk. I got to work. I got to keep working. And when I'm writing, I learned that walking 
and exercising created creativity. And it made me a better writer and it made me a better thinker. And I think that that really is what applies to most of us in our business. I think we have to do that. We have to get away. Less does equal more. So what did Michael's time observing and being an integral part of some of American football's most successful teams teach him? It taught me to break down leaders out of any industry into four categories. And I just did a TED Talk three weeks ago in Santa Barbara, and the TED Talk is about how leadership is killing culture today. That leader's job is to create culture. It's to establish, maintain, and create the culture. Too often today, leaders are worried about tactics and strategy and bottom line, and they lose sight of the culture. Yeah, you came up with these points of command of room, command of the message, command of opportunity, command of process. This is when my brain really started going because I often feel like I'm not a great leader and that's hurting the business. Right. You got to have command of the room, command of the message. Command of self is so important. You've got to be willing to admit mistakes. And because you're willing to be transparent, you then create curiosity and creativity within your own organization because you're now allowing other people to make mistakes. The greatest lessons we've learned have come through mistakes. So you had this framework for leaderships. I'm curious as to how that sort of assessment or that sort of rubric held up for you over your career, because later in the book you write, character assessment is the hardest challenge for team builders more than any other factor. Inaccurate character assessment, basically, and I'm quoting you now, is why draft boards are to this day littered with so many mistakes. How do people mess up with character assessment? We don't understand millennials. We don't understand the generation we're dealing with. I think this is one of Al Davis's biggest downfalls. Just to quickly cut in with some insider baseball or insider football in this case, Al Davis was the principal owner and general manager of the Oakland Raiders of the National Football League for 39 years. For football fans out there, this guy is a character and a legend. So from 1972 until his death in 2011. Now, back to the interview. He had great success in the 60s and the 70s with those athletes because I think he understood the culture that they were living in. He understood the evils and the predicament that young men were going through at that time. Today, they're way different than they were in the 60s and 70s. If you don't keep in touch with that, you lose sight. Look, I'm the first to tell you I learned more about black culture, African-American culture in America today from watching The Wire. I'm a (laughs) white guy who grew up in a South Jersey town, right? And I watched The Wire, and most of the people that I'm looking at to evaluate are basically in that predicament that The Wire displayed, inner city, tough backgrounds. I learned so much about not evaluating people from my viewpoint, but from their viewpoint of where they live. That was really important. And you have to do that constantly. Today, when I was at the Patriots the last three years, we brought in specialists to talk about millennials, how to deal with them, how to evaluate them, how to not judge them on things that we think are wrong, but how they see the world. That's a challenge. So there's like certain things that millennials do that you might be tempted to think is a character defect that could be benign or a strength. Exactly. Like, you know, we're talking about building a team when when most millennials are taking selfies. (laughs) And so that's a contradiction right there, right? But it's just the society they're in. It doesn't mean that they're selfish and they're all about themselves. It may, but it doesn't necessarily mean you should judge them that way. Right. And so I think that that's really helped a lot. You talk a lot about bias and talent evaluation. 
you tell some great stories about the different biases around you. Were there things that you favored over and over again that ended up causing you to make mistakes as you evaluated talent? Yeah, I think when I get too wrapped up into something, you know, when I when I truly believe it, I, I have to be in a constant journey to disprove what I believe. If I take that away from myself, I'm not a good evaluator. Like Belichick does this really well. If he likes a player, he starts trying to figure out why he shouldn't like the player. He reverse engineers it, <laughs> you know, and I think that if we do that, you know, and this is what I talk about, the false duality. You know, it's not I like the player, I don't like the player. It's I like the player and then try to find the three or four reasons why you could be wrong with your own evaluation. And, and I think that that's something you have to constantly do with yourself instead of reaching a conclusion. And, and the more experience you gain, Dan, it doesn't mean you can cut corners. It means you have to do the most amount of work. One of the things you said about Belichick was he expertly defines what everyone in the organization is expected to do. And I was wondering, like, is that micromanagement or is it different from that? That's a great question because he tells you what he wants you to do. He doesn't then show you and expect you to do it his way. He's very evergreen with his approach. Look, here's what I need. Here's what I expect you to do. Now, how you get there to me, to him, doesn't really matter. If you want to come in at two in the morning and leave at seven every night, go ahead and do it. You don't have to work his hours. You don't have to be by his side. You don't have to ask him for permission. But the work has to account for something. And so how you get there is your own way. To me, that's the way it is. I don't think that's micromanaging. I think that's evergreen. I think that's allowing you to be yourself and it becomes organic. And so therefore, he's able to define what he wants, step back and let you do it. Now, here's the key what he does is if you do it well, you'll get more to do. If you don't do it well, you're going to get less to do. One of the things that struck me, Mike, you were walking through the game week preparation plans, which are fascinating. And one of the things that happens every week is that Belichick sits with Brady without the offensive coordinator. Why do you think he does that? Because he wants to connect himself to the entire team. He doesn't want this to be a compartmentalized team. It's all about the team. And so he needs to have a connection to the quarterback. And Josh McDaniels, the offensive coordinator, doesn't have a problem with it at all. You know, he knows he and Bill are on the same page and they're the same message. And so it allows Bill a connection to the entire team through the quarterback. You know, I wanted to jump in here to describe why this is one of the many moments in the book that jumped off the page to me. Okay. So for those of you who don't watch football, the quarterback is essentially the coach on the field. He is the most important player on the field and runs the offense. Now, Above the quarterback, ostensibly, there's an offensive coordinator who is essentially like a director-level person in the organization and is in charge of what that quarterback does on the field. At the top, you've got the CEO. That's the listeners of this podcast. That's Bill Belichick. The winners, they are in charge of the whole show. So now why is the CEO going to sit down for a one-on-one -on -one without the boss of the quarterback? Makes a lot of sense to me, Dan. It makes sense to you. I know it makes sense to you because this is something that you implemented in our business. Let's bring it to the bottom line. Why do this? Why not preserve a clear chain of command? I think different styles for different folks, right? I think that there's probably CEOs and there's probably coaches in the NFL that do not talk directly to their quarterbacks. They send out a clear message to their offensive coordinator, and they say, this is the way that we're going to run this team. This is the way that we're going to run this game. 
You communicate that to the quarterback. I'm going to be sitting over there watching the game or doing whatever else I need to be doing. Bill Belichick, I guess, he goes directly to the quarterback. And I think the reason for this is important because it flattens out the organization. It's like a checkup, basically. It allows you to figure out if you're on the same page as your offensive coordinator, I think, in a lot of ways, without talking directly with your offensive coordinator. So if you go to your guy, your offensive coordinator, and you say like, hey, are we on the same page? He's like, yeah, yeah, you're on the same page. Yeah, yeah. Totally, boss. You're the greatest of all time. We're on the same page. (laughs) Exactly. You go to your quarterback and, and he says, oh, no, like what he told me to do was this. And you think, well, I just had a conversation with this guy. I thought we were on the same page. And so that's what it does. It eliminates that triad. Because there's a political element to it when you get that triad going. You can feel it on team calls. You can imagine the difference between a call with three people on it, like a team call versus a one-on-one call. Not only is there a political situation going on there, and by the way, Dan, I'm not like a football fan, so, but I kind of understand how this works, but there are personal motivations, I'm sure, by that offensive coordinator, right? Like he wants to do certain things with his career. He believes certain things should be done in a game, right? So he's going to impart those ideas onto the quarterback, even if they're not Bill Belichick's ideas. And that can be a problem. And so that's where I think that Bill Belichick is going in there and having a one-on-one with Tom Brady. So we've done this in our business. What does it have to do with leadership? The clear takeaway here is that if you decide to do one-on-ones with key executors in your business, you are sending them a message that they have your ear. And you're also diagnosing the leadership quality of your lieutenants. As Michael talks about, part of being a great leader is having a command of the message. Well, by talking with one-on-one with people that are executing your vision, you're going to get a pretty good sense of how that message is being communicated. And just, again, one of the many vignettes that jumped off the page about the critical importance of regularly doing these things in order to win, right? Now, so it's easy in a business to say, oh, that's a good idea. I heard it on a podcast and sure, man, my business would be so much better if I did that. And then you don't do it one week and you let it go and you let it go the next week. Well, Bill Belichick, Tom Brady, their jobs are on the line. And so they've figured out that this is what works. And so they have it as a part of the process, Ian. They do it the same time every single week. So there's your takeaway. You've heard Growth Ninja advertise their performance-based Facebook ad service before on this pod. But did you know that they have a generous referral program, and it's serious, that pays out 20% of their lifetime earnings. They have referrers making thousands every month from this program, and some of them have been getting those payments for years. Think about it, just how big these payments can actually get. Let's do the math. So the biggest invoice Growth Ninja has ever sent out to an individual client was $56,000 in a single month. So if you were the referrer of that client, they'd send you a whopping $11,000 just for that month. And that's just one referral. So let your friends know about Growth Ninja. It pays. And of course, every month after that, that the client works with Growth Ninja, you get paid as well. So if you know anyone already running profitable Facebook ads campaigns and they're ready for some serious scale with a trusted agency that has profitably spent upwards of $65,000 for a single client in a single Sunday, this is serious stuff, check out their referral checklist at growthninja.com slash referral. And a big thanks to Growth Ninja for sponsoring the pod. 
You write in the book that if people want to learn about getting their dream job, people are off reading about Buffett, but they ought to read about Belichick. What are like Belichick's dream job principles? He's unbelievably dedicated. You know, when he comes to work, he's very much like a lawyer. Every hour is justified. He doesn't waste a moment when he's in the building. There is no time wasted. If he's on the treadmill, he's reading newspaper clippings. If he's on the treadmill, he's watching tape. If he's in his office watching film, he's not answering the telephone. He's not looking at internet. He's not searching his computer. Everything is meticulously planned. And his focus and concentration is what separates him from most everybody else. He can focus and concentrate for the amount of time that he's in the office. You mentioned like leadership is like sort of this long-term investment potential. But when I read things like being culture first, where does some of that rubber meet the road? Like, How can I think about building a culture in my business? You do it by who you are, right? So you say, look, here are the principles that I believe in, and this is how I want my company to behave. The standard of excellence that Walsh put in. He didn't walk into the 49ers in 1979 and say, we're going to win the Super Bowl in two years, which they did. He came in talking about principles about how he wanted the company to act and behave in all situations. And it would apply to the PA announcer at Candlestick Park. It applied to the janitor at 7-Eleven Nevada Street. It applied to everyone. And because it applied to everyone, his actions led the culture of the organization. And so when he told me in 1984, we're only competing against eight, I thought it was about players and schemes and talent of the other teams. And it was about there was only eight other cults, seven other cultures that could compete with the 49ers. And that's why he was so good. Do coaches ever think about like planning for succession? Because in business, like that responsibility you're describing is enormous, you know, and the amount of stamina required to continue to do that it makes me think, man, I need to get a successor in here. How do you, you know, empower your coordinators and, and coaches and executives to be the same way? There's two kind of leaders that we all see in life. There's the solution-based leader who looks at a situation and just bases it on the solution of present day. And then there's the sustainable leader, the guy that looks at the short term and the long term in every solution. That's Belichick. He's sustainable. He's not going to leave the Patriots in a mess when he retires because he understands the sustainability of the organization is really going to be his trademark. As a leader, you're trying to develop that sustainability. People have to think short and long. And I think that's really how you do that. And I think it comes down to those two areas. It's interesting because a lot of like what's exposed to your book is not like these secrets, right? That these guys have in, in some ways the answer is like right there in front of us. So you write like what impressed me most about Belichick and Walsh is their self-awareness where many of those who had similar success and even know about these principles, they can't be tempted out of becoming closed-minded, authoritarian, and lazy. Why is like this simple answer right there yet it's so hard for so many people to uh, execute? I just think sometimes we think we're looking for complexity. We're trying to show how smart we are when just take the simple solution. You know, simple matters. And it's hard. Look, it's hard to maintain culture. It's hard to have command of the process and have to make tough decisions and disappoint some people. And it's hard to have confrontation with players or, or people in the organization to have honest and open conversations. Those are hard to do. And when you avoid doing it, you put layers of problems within your own organization. You don't see it at first, but all of a sudden it's like a root that starts to take shape and grows. Right. You're right. Simple game plans win. Like all this machine ultimately hands each player with something simple to execute. Right. It's like 
The best coaches in the NFL don't run new plays every week. They take their existing plays and apply it to the team that they're going to play. It's no different than being a grandmaster in chess. They don't invent new moves each week. They apply what they know to their opponent and how they can best execute what they do really well versus that specific opponent. How would you compare Bill Belichick's leadership style to Bill Simmons's? I'm curious because Bill seems like a fantastic leader as well. He's assembled an incredible roster of talent to work for him. How does he do that? I think that both stimulate creativity. I think that's the challenge. You know, so when you get that creativity thing going and you don't mind people to make mistakes and you're able to modify and adjust, I think you create an environment of creativity and curiosity, which we have to have in life. If we don't have it, we fall short. Has anything surprised you about the response to putting out this book? I've had the great fortune of, I studied Robert Caro like I would study an NFL coach. Robert Caro has written five books in his life. The first, The Power Brokers, about Robert Moses, and then four volumes of LBJ, the fifth volume to come out later. And he's 86 years old, and he's devoted his life to these five or six books now. And he told me, The greatest thrill he ever has is when he's walking down Fifth Avenue in New York where he lives or he's on the subway and he sees somebody reading The Power Broker. (laughs) And for me, I think that when I go into a bookstore today or I I see somebody reading, somebody sends me a picture of them reading Gridiron Genius via Twitter. To me, it's really it's it's most fulfilling thing in life. It's very, very rewarding. And as it moves and people become more aware of it. It applies to different fields. I want this book to be read at at every sports management program in America because I think this is realistic sports management. It isn't theory. It's interesting, Mike. That's why I picked up the book, actually, because I was like, you know, the problem with a lot of business people is that their success or failure is non-falsifiable. Like you can just paint it up and say, you know, I didn't really want to get to that level or whatever. Whereas you guys, you can't afford to do that. No. Like you're winning or you're losing. You know, these guys that do analytics, there's a place for it. I'm in the information business in the NFL. We collect data and research data, but we're not on a doctoral study. We don't have 20 years. You know, we can't do it. So we've got to come to some conclusions. And if we're wrong, we're wrong. But we've got to find a way to get the answers and we'll modify it once we get there. And this is what I want this book. I mean, I want the woman's volleyball coach of a high school to read this book. I want the the field hockey coach of a Division II field hockey team to read. I want everybody who wants to build team and culture to read the book. I got just two more questions. The first is, this might be weird, but something jumped out to me that I've seen just as a pattern in successful people, which is this idea of never allowing yourself to get bored. But it's so relatable. I think there's so many of us that feel like we're stuck in our career. What do you do when you feel that way? Pick up a book, read a book, go to the bookstore and buy three books that are not in the areas that you normally read and find something different to read. I've been so blessed to meet this man, George Raveling. He's 81 years old. He's in the Hall of Fame in college basketball. And he shared with me that the, his life has improved from the time he was 60 to he's 81 today. And it's all because of his reading and his curiosity. He never stops. And even so, he tells the story that's truly fascinating of when he was a young man living in Pennsylvania. His college roommate went to his hometown in Delaware to visit the family. And and the dad said, are you guys going to go down to Washington to see the speeches in, in Washington in 1963? And they said, no, we don't have any money. We can't afford it. The father said, look, I'll give you my car. I'll give you my money. But you two guys should go down there. I think something powerful is going to happen. So they did. They went in the car. 
They drove down there. They rented a hotel room on the outskirts of town, and they walked into town, and the speech promoters saw these two tall African-American guys, and they said, would you mind being security for the, the detail? And they said, sure, we'll do it. So they're up on stage. <laughs> and George, Coach Rav, is so in tune to his situation that when Dr. King was done giving the speech, he asked Dr. King, could he have a copy of the speech? And Dr. King just instinctively handed it to him. And he's been the curator of that speech since 1963. Remarkable story. The speech is not entitled, I Have a Dream. The speech only changed after five minutes because Mahalia Jackson sitting behind Dr. King said, tell him about the dream, Martin. And he did. Wow. And what people don't realize about that speech is at that moment when he was on stage, that he was not the keynote speaker. He was the 16th of 16 speakers. And each speaker had a five minute time limit. And at five minutes is when Miss Jackson said, tell him about the dream, Dr. King. And that's when he went into it. And it's the ultimate message for command of message. If you want to command your message, see how Dr. King did it with the vision, with the details of that speech. It's incredible. My final question was going to be, hey, a lot of us are ambitious, but we're having trouble kickstarting an incredible career. What's your parting shot for people that are ambitious and looking to get started with something? Look internally and figure out what you really are. Define yourself. Scout inside out, not outside in. Right now, you're scouting outside in. You want everything. Go back to the uh, French Laundry. Put three things on your menu and work them. Mike, I appreciate it, man. Thanks so much for writing the book. Thanks, Dan. It was an incredible, incredible effort and offering to the world. It's a real cool experience to, to read it. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let me know when you put this up, Dan. I will. Thanks to Michael Lombardi for coming by the show. He's a very busy guy, as you can imagine, has quite the media profile. You know, there's these like different worlds. Well, this guy, you know, in the football commentary world, he's a pretty big deal. I was nervous and excited to talk to him. Sorry we, we couldn't like nail that sound quality. You know, boss man, I didn't have a Belichick level process. Well, <laughs> next time. It's a really great book. Gridiron Genius, Michael Lombardi. If you have any interest in American football, it's fascinating and you're going to get takeaways on running a great organization. So what are they? What did I walk away from this thinking? A lot of things. But one, Ian, is that a sustainable strategy for success. I mean, you listen to a lot of podcasts like, oh, here's a strategy, here's a trend, here's a this, here's a that. In the NFL, in football, it all comes down to leadership. And building quality organizations. That's a systemic approach that all starts with you or the successors and leadership that you're training. And getting good at that itself is a good long-term strategy. You know, we got so many topics on this show flirt with this idea of somehow getting out of the leadership game, right? Somehow walking away from the business, somehow automating it with technology, somehow figuring out a way to do things an easier way. And look, I'm all about exploring those options, but this book is a, is a hard dose of truth the other way, which is saying, look, in the crucible of you got to win, you got to lose, our analysis suggests that it comes down to the quality of the leadership. So in other words, like in business, there's a lot of variables, right? It's like, well, did you choose a good market? Did you choose a bad market? Use your timing right, did this, that, and the other thing. 
in the football world, a lot of those variables are controlled and everybody's working with the same resources, fighting for the same prize. And the variable there then comes down to leadership. And the book does outline the ways in which Michael Lombardi would go about evaluating leaders. So what's my takeaway? I'm not a great leader. <laughs> it's just, I'm not a great leader. That's what I walked, I put down the book and I was like, I'm not a great leader. That sucks. And it's hurting my business. And it doesn't need to be super, super difficult to start you know, one day at a time to address some of those weaknesses and to become better. So that's my takeaway. There's always time to become a better leader, Dan, I think. My takeaway, I don't mean this in like a super sarcastic way, Dan, but I find it amazing. I mean, like the way that these organizations are run, like the time and care that goes in, the thought that goes into these organizations, the leadership, you know, the fact that Michael Lombardi is analyzing these types of things. It is truly amazing and remarkable. I wish it was done more in the business world, right? And like you said, the reason why it's possible is because this is a zero-sum game. And it's very profitable and it's established. Exactly. And so I think in a lot of ways, it's easier to go in and kind of analyze and optimize these organizations, much so than it is like these one-off businesses. That being said, these organizations are exceptional. And what I find interesting is how actually unexceptional the people are that spend their time watching football are during the weekends. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> One thing that's really changed in the sports world is that fandom, being a fan, a fanatic, is a lot different from loving a sport. And I think with like TV and especially analysts like Michael, he breaks down football so strategically at a league level that you can actually be a fan of the league or follow, like just follow the sport in a really fascinating way nowadays because they open kimono it. It's all about how the GMs work, how the coaches work, how the leadership structure works, how much money is going to what resources within the organization. And it's like watching this enormous board game play out in front of you. Whereas in the business world, we talk about it so much on the show and you expressed it earlier, those things are so opaque. You cannot see them if I had a nickel for every time I've said on this show, the people who are having the kind of success you probably envision for your business are not talking about it. I saw on Twitter the other day, someone trying to pull together a list of all the million dollar businesses that have been bootstrapped without funding. And I'm like, I can think of a hundred probably if I sat down with a pen and paper and you for 30 minutes. 95% of the businesses out there are bootstrapped. Yeah. There's certain information that wants to be free and certain information that doesn't. And it just comes down to look at their shoes, not their mouths. Watch their feet, not their mouths. You have to find other ways to pick up on what businesses are doing to be successful than listening to media like this. Bottom line, that's it. I remember like I used to have business friends who would send me articles. When I was a younger business person, I would get like Harvard Business Review emailed to me or like Inc. Magazine emailed to me. And I'd like be like, oh, wow, like it's interesting. There's like a trend that blah, 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 blah. Fast forward 10 years, me and you have been lucky enough to be a small part of some of those trends and know people personally that have defined them. And then 10 years later, Ian, I find myself now reading these same Harvard Business Review or like Inc. Magazine things. And I'm like, 
yeah, that's just way off and it's three years too late. And this person, they're clearly not a business person. Yeah. In the sports world, what's cool about the sports world is that these things are more transparent is what I'm getting to. In the business world, it's still very much a puzzle for us. And everybody's groping to figure out you know, how it is that we can grow successful businesses in this contemporary age. And you know, for me, this message of building a culture and being an effective leader was resonant. And that's something that you can control. You know, whereas a lot of things in business and life are outside of your control. Thanks a lot to uh, Mike Lombardi for coming on the show. And Dan, thanks for taking the time to talk with him. Absolutely. This one's going to be posted over at tropicalmba.com slash Michael Lombardi. And we'll be back as always, as is the process, next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. See you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.